when I saw the pictures of the devastation, my soul wept. People lost their homes. Over 400 homes got lost. My father lost his home. All of my friends that lived across the street from me, all of their houses were gone. I didn't really know what they were doing. I didn't really understand it all. They had a scare tactic with a crane over one of the neighbor's homes. The, the ball would come in, smash the house. My parents were in the kitchen crying, and they told us that we had to move. There were other routes. They could have chose a better route. There was a, a cohesiveness with the community prior to I-94. There were businesses, families looked out for one another. We had a lot of kids and family, you know, families that were tight-knit and they all watched each other. That was the strength of the community. If we know who we are and who we came from, it helps us to go forward in our lives. If we know nothing about our history, then how are we to know about our future? Ten nine eight seven six five four three two one or something like that. This is Rondo Beyond the Pavement, the podcast. I am Jose Quintanilla. The stories you will hear on this podcast are from people who lived or live in the Rondo neighborhood in St. Paul, Minnesota. In the 1920s, Rondo, St. Paul's largest African-American neighborhood, was flourishing with music, theater, African-American newspapers, and businesses that were booming. The community was thriving. Until September of 1956, when construction of Interstate 94 tore through the Rondo community. Rondo homeowners resisted the construction and protests began. Residents were forcefully removed from their homes. Thousands of Rondo residents were displaced. Homes and successful businesses were demolished and a community was torn apart. The construction of 94 shattered the fabric of the Rondo community. It did not shatter Rondo's spirit. To me, Rondo's still thriving because of community. These are the stories of Rondo, Beyond the Pavement. Melvin Emanuel Jr. My father lost his home on St. Anthony when they first started purchasing homes for the highway. So he just left. He had a home near Dale and St. Anthony. So he left because he said they had a scare tactic with a crane over one of the neighbor's homes. My dad said, they said, you need to go. We're taking over. And a lot of people were talking. Well, maybe we should stay. Can they do that? He said they woke up one Saturday morning, a crane, the giant steel wrecking ball was hanging over the neighbor's home from them partying on a Friday night. Somehow they got that crane there over the guy's home. A Saturday morning when they woke up, it was suspended above the home. My dad said that was enough fear for him to realize he shouldn't waste any time. So he had an opportunity to buy three houses on this block 
Um, and so he chose this home that we're in at 894 Aurora. I grew up in this house and 12 years ago we purchased the house back from the estate that I, my parents died in. This area here on Aurora, I later learned my dad said he felt honored because this was predominantly a white Jewish neighborhood and the homes were the Jewish people were selling their home and moving to Highland. And so he felt honored to, there was a developer that moved in this house for an air, airport expansion. And so he felt pleased to have a chance to buy a pretty much what was a brand new house to the location. And it was an old farmhouse. So he said he jumped on the opportunity. My family consists of, um, I grew up with my mom and dad. They died together and then um, I have one biological sister that was seven years younger than me, Odetta. And my parents also, fortunately for other children, they taken in foster children. So we had foster children come and go for about 15 years of my life. You could ride your bike, you could leave your door open ride, run, jump rope, stick ball, you name it, every game. We played it right on the street. That's what I love about this block, all this background noise, and these kids laughing and playing. It's always been this way. Like, and it still doesn't matter. Like, we have a white, young millennial family on the corner, and they send their boy down here, and that family was always in a white family. That house has always been white folk. And so, and so now it's a white family and their boy comes down and plays, plays right here in the shower with my grandson. You know, and we all watch and they watch the kids and, you know, so it's still that way. So thanks, yeah, it's still that way. That still exists in America, 2018. What I noticed was that the adults talked in quiet amongst themselves after church, usually on Sundays, congregating. We always went to St. Peter Claver Church, though we are non-denominational. It was where you went to kind of connect with other community members. So I remember people talking, saying they knew the highway was gonna go through there, but as a kid, I rode my bike and played down there in the dirt from this location. And we drove over to St. Anthony, went down the hill, played, collected rocks. I was part of the Young Minerals Club or something at the Science Museum, and I'd find a lot of agates down there. And so I'd go down there and get as many agates as I could find to trade at the Science Museum for fossils. And so for years there wasn't a highway there. To me as a kid it seemed like forever, but it was probably you know, five or six years or something, but there wasn't a highway there and we didn't know when it was coming. We knew it was coming because they had dug a huge trench there. And so then it showed up and I can remember hardly cars were out there. You could go stand on the bridge and, and wait for minutes before you'd see a car in the 70s, especially on the weekend. 
It was not, it wasn't a heavily used highway like today that you see it. And, and cars didn't really go to Minneapolis in the morning. So you didn't see all that traffic going either. I feel like they could have chose a better route, clearly. When I look at how the route from like Pierce Butler and how it exits downtown from Rice Street and all that, I think that could have been a better path and it was industrial. But as a kid, you just grow up with it and it's in your neighborhood and you don't know why. Then later on you understand the history and I feel like it was useless because it put a division between our community. So it made this community go from university to the highway, which is only four blocks. And then the highway became a divide from two black communities. And so it became that side of the bridge and this side of the bridge. And so then there became um, somewhat of a weird in-school friction or you live over there so you're this type of kid and if you live over there you're that type of kid and so it it wasn't to, to me I felt like if this was one community how could just the highway separate us those folks and these folks then became resentful because we had an area on the other side of university that was only white folks that liked to live only by white folks. And we hardly went over there and bothered them. You know, and it was called Honkyville to us. You know, as harsh as that might sound. You know, and our area was probably called something else to them. You know, but we went over there and, you know, literally one block over university. And you would get chased, beat, spit on. If they were on university and they saw you, they would call you dirty names and stuff. And so you, you, you lived like that. But over here, you could have the key to the blonde-haired, blue-eyed kid's house with permission from his mom. Right here on the same street, go university, and then go into Sherburne, Thomas, Edmond, all those. You could get the brake speed off of you. Selby became a business district for there were still some black businesses that perhaps probably some of those business owners moved from Rondo to Selby in their businesses and then that became a business district so between Selby and the highway there were some uh, families that probably had uh, lived in their homes longer so they probably had to do less maintenance. The families that were over here were all newly um, transplanted into this neighborhood. And so this here was a neighborhood of um, white folks that were, uh, maybe the Jewish community was more accepting than the Scandinavian community that was on the other side of the university. And the Jewish community here had a place to go, which was Highland Park because those homes were being built in the 50s and the 60s. And so there was new community and new opportunity for them, you know. And so they left these nice homes, they sold them, they are enterprising, 
They wanted money. They didn't care who bought the house or not. As long as somebody bought it and I feel like there was enough money in Rondo that they paid a pretty price for these homes, you know, at that time for the economic dollar. Culture here was really rich. It was good. We, we worked. Everyone, all the children had fathers in their homes, whether it was their blood father. Some of my friends, I can remember their uncle there all the time, but he was their dad because he was the man in the house. And he worked and he, he was there all the time. So we, for years, I thought that was their dad until I became 12 or 13 and I realized, oh, that's your uncle, you know. Um, there were boyfriends that were consistent, but that was because there were jobs and everyone had a job. And when I seen the jobs leave was when the dads left, you know, and I would leave too if I didn't have a job and I had no way and I was just a burden in my family, I wouldn't sit around and, and continue to be a burden. Now just, I, I, my grandson is nine and my youngest child is 12 and I tell them the history. And I say, man, everyone around here had a job. You know, there were, there were plenty of jobs, no matter what, you, you know, your education. I knew guys, their dad couldn't read and he went to work every day. And now I know people that have college degrees that can't get jobs. Now what's, what's happening is the, the historical value of the community is diminishing. And I don't know, let's say I would say that it's, we're losing uh, the, the ethnicity because it's always had white folks living over here in these areas. So I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's more white folks, but I will say that there's less black homeowners. And when we grew up, there was a lot of, everybody owned their home. There's a social rules that we live by in America that if you have people that are around you that aren't white, you don't live in a great area. And even some black folks buy into that. That's why they move to Woodbury. Because they feel like, man, I've, I'm doing better for the same home. And they say, well, you know, and I've even asked today why some of the families they say, well, I don't want to deal with that particular problem. And they identify one problem that's an urban problem, not a cultural or, or um, skin tone problem. That's a problem that's just based on poverty and systems that they don't want to deal with. And we see that around here now. There's social issues is what they are, but it's not okay to live um, amongst vibrant people of color for some reason, I don't know why. When they talk about gentrification, the problem I see is that there's the, the money train and how you get it doesn't work. Because if you have a low paying job 
and you make 45,000 a year and you know you've got two kids or three kids you can't afford to fix anything on your house and so somehow because all the products are expensive doors are a couple thousand dollars this is high everything's so high so it doesn't allow the community to fix things up so generationally the kids then are systemically stuck in a rut because if if they're making a job making $25 an hour, they think that's a lot of money if they're urban black kids. But that's nothing comparatively. And so they might get this job making $37 an hour, and that's not enough because our society deems so much more to, to maintain all that stuff. So I would have a community, this would have the families that have been here that I look and I see, well, why can't the kids afford to maintain the house? Because the parents didn't do anything, because when you get old, you don't have the energy, and you don't need to fix everything, because you're not using the whole house, the kids are gone. Then when the kids get it, or they get an opportunity to buy it, everything's so expensive, they can't afford to build a garage for $25,000. That's ridiculous. And that we push people to go get a job as an accountant. You can't fix anything at your house with the skills of an accountant, all you can do is know how to pay people to fix the stuff, and hopefully they manage it right. And so we really have to look at that, that systemically the, the value of what I was raised to reach for graduating in 1982 as a good paying job, today is no longer a good paying job. And those little $25 an hour paychecks, those are nothing. And I thought those were good money back then. And so now my kids, if they get those jobs, I tell them they'll be living back here in another 20 years if, if we keep the rate of inflation. And so that's what I would change in communities. We, we have to look at the black community in America, not just this community, needs a leg up. Catch me feeling the vibe Blessed with this vision I cannot describe Something like grandma's pie Healing the village be damned if he try it Rondo Beyond the Pavement is brought to you in partnership with St. Paul Almanac through their Project Storymobile, St. Paul Neighborhood Network, and High School for Recording Arts, and funded by the City of St. Paul's Cultural Star Program, and by the voters of Minnesota through a Minnesota State Arts Board Operating Support Grant. Thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Music from this episode is performed by myself, Yevra. You can find my music on all digital platforms. Listen to more stories from Rondo and watch the film at rondobeyondthepavement.org. <laughs>